Have market conditions changed fundraising plans? Morgan Stanley at Work can help companies stay ready for their next major liquidity event. With comprehensive equity and liquidity solutions and a dedicated private-to-public team, we help late-stage private companies conduct shareholder liquidity events and prepare for life in the public markets, whether they're three years or three months away from an IPO. Visit morganstanley.com slash strictlyvc to learn more about our solutions for powering late-stage private company growth. Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, everyone. How are you? What a week. Adobe paid a fortune for Figma, whose design software has apparently been spreading like wildfire among designers at both big and small companies. Figma's investors love it. They just made a killing. Meanwhile, Wall Street thinks the deal stings. VC Shervin Pishavar turned up in the news. According to Pishavar, a notorious self-promoter who left Silicon Valley under a cloud of accusations by women in his sphere, he is now the vice chairman for Yeezy, the brand controlled by Kanye West. Pishover always denied the claims against him, but either way, having interacted with him over the years, we have seen his less than charming side and we wonder how long his new appointment will last. I never thought I'd feel sorry for Kanye West, who is now legally known simply as Ye, but there you have it. What else? Oh, Roger Federer retired. This makes us very sad. Then again, watching Carlos Alcaraz become the world's number one men's tennis player last week must have been pretty clarifying. You can imagine that Federer watched him too and thought, Nah, time for something new. Of course, there was a lot more than that, but we have stories and an interview to get to. This week, we were really happy to talk with Anne Mira Co, the co-founding partner of venture firm Floodgate and a Stanford lecturer who is very passionate about company building and who is now with her partners trying to expose a swath of college students around the country to some of their lessons learned. We talked with Mira Co about a new program that students out there might want to know about so that they can apply soon for next year. But first, the news. Yesterday, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law a bill entitled the California Age-Appropriate Design Code Act. Starting in July 2024, this measure will require social media companies like Meta, Snap, and TikTok to study products and features that minors might use and ensure that they are not harmful to children. The law has its pluses. It forbids social media companies from profiling minors or tracking their location. In addition, companies that violate the rules can face fines up to $7,500 per affected child if the conduct is found to be intentional. Still, a separate measure that would have allowed the government to sue social media companies when their apps cause harm or addiction in children died in the California legislature last month. And... An earlier version of the bill that would have allowed parents to sue social media companies was also quashed. Internet privacy advocates argue that measures like the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act could blur the line between product liability and freedom of speech. And it's definitely easy to understand how difficult it must be to moderate a platform with hundreds of millions of users. But as we learned from Frances Haugen's testimony last year about her time at Facebook, now Meta, manipulative and addictive algorithms lie at Facebook's very core, and Meta has deliberately suppressed this information from government regulators and the general public for many years. 
Do we honestly expect this situation is any different at Snap, TikTok, or the next social media platform du jour? So yay, California, a step in the right direction. But as any parent will tell you, we still have a long way to go. In today's Wall Street Journal, author Pratika Rana perfectly sums up her subject in her title. Welcome to your Airbnb. The cleaning fees are $143 and you'll still have to wash the linens. If you've ever rented an Airbnb, you've probably noticed the cleaning fees. More than half of Airbnb rentals charge them, and they are going up. According to AirDNA, a market research firm, Airbnb's average cleaning fees in the U.S. have risen 44% over the last five years to an average of $143. If you rent a property on the coast with more than five bedrooms, you can expect to pay an average of $420 in cleaning bills. But increasingly, hosts are also asking guests to perform an ever-growing list of chores. One traveler was planning a romantic getaway to a lakeside cottage in Quebec until she discovered that she and her boyfriend were expected to take their trash with them when they left. Another Airbnb host in Sedona, Arizona, piled on so many chores that guest Nicole Kane almost missed a canyon tour she had planned. And this despite the fact that Kane was paying $375 in cleaning fees for a $299 night Airbnb. Guests who don't play ball can lose a portion or all of their deposit or receive a low rating from their host. And while guests can appeal an arbitrary decision by a host, it's a lot to deal with when you're just trying to take a vacation and relax. Derek Tukotsky, who runs rental properties in Fort Lauderdale, doesn't require anything of his guests. This chore business is giving us a bad rep and causing guests to flee to hotels, he told the journal. Up next, Connie's interview with Anne Mira Coe of Floodgate. But first, a word from our sponsor. Have market conditions changed fundraising plans? Morgan Stanley at Work can help companies stay ready for their next major liquidity event. With comprehensive equity and liquidity solutions and a dedicated private-to-public team, we help late-stage private companies conduct shareholder liquidity events and prepare for life in the public markets, whether they're three years or three months away from an IPO. Visit morganstanley.com slash strictlyvc to learn more about our solutions for powering late-stage private company growth. And now, Connie's interview with Anne Mirako of Floodgate. And I'm so happy to be talking to you. We were catching up a little bit last week, and you were telling me about something a pretty interesting happening at Floodgate, and I thought maybe we could explore it a little further. So you took in 10 student teams from across the country and had them come to your office. I don't know if you were incubating these things. Tell me what the motivation was to work with these students and how this whole thing was structured. Yeah, I mean, I'll start off with a background for all of this, which is that I teach at Stanford. I've been doing it since 2003 when I was a graduate student there. So I was a PhD student in the School of Engineering, and I had the chance to work under a multitude of instructors, including Steve Blank, Mark Leslie, who've taught some really interesting frameworks for startup development. And then eventually 
I had the chance to branch out on my own and start teaching my own classes. And there's one class that I teach, which is about how to really think through building breakthroughs. And then another class that I get to teach, which is a smaller bespoke program called Mayfield Fellows. And the program that I run actually has a 25-year history. Tom Byers at Stanford started it. And it has this incredible history of having had people like Mike Krieger and Kevin Systrom from Instagram as part of it. Josh Reeves from Gusto was also part of it. And they're very active members of this community. And the things that I teach within that I felt were really important concepts, not only around leadership and entrepreneurship, but also when combined with this idea of how do you build incredible breakthroughs was an interesting combination that we felt should go outside the boundaries of Stanford. And we also felt like if we could cultivate it purely for builders, that something magical really could happen. We combine those two concepts with also this additional notion that we wanted to really invest in people and not their ideas. And to us, that felt unique because there are a lot of different programs, even for students these days, which is really focused around having those students start a company Mm -hmm. right now. And a lot of times it involves a demo day. And in our mind, the problem with the demo day was that you're racing towards this date where you are pitching to a bunch of investors. And what that looks like is you're really trying to optimize how you build your business for that awesome hockey stick graph. And so it almost doesn't matter what the graph is, but needs to be a hockey stick. Mm -hmm. And the way I would describe this to my partners was, Demo day optimizes for pitch deck to investor fit, not product market fit, not like some really interesting insight, but rather this frenzied desire to create the optimal pitch deck. You know, it's kind of funny, sorry to interrupt you, but oh, uh, yeah. TechCrunch, we, we created a bingo board, which I had nothing to do with, but I thought it was pretty <laughs> funny. And one of the squares was how many times people would say, we just launched and already <laughs> dot, dot, dot. So yes, <laughs> to underscore your point. Yeah. And I think some of those accelerators are amazing because people are ready to go for it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for those people, they probably should start their company. But we believe at Floodgate that our best advantage is to find people as they're starting out and as they're starting to think through, is this even the right idea? And is this even big enough? And I find that that's a question that not only students at universities are asking, but operators who have decided that they might try it out a startup. Or even we've seen people who have actually had successful exits and they're thinking of going at it again. These are the same questions that people ask. And so we believe that we needed to become experts at helping people answer those questions as quickly as possible. And if we invest into founders and not their ideas, then it allows us to not have such an emotional attachment to the idea and allows us to be totally honest with the founder about whether or not the idea is worthy of their talent. So the outcome of this program is that we have multiple students for whom they never found that great idea. Many of them came in with ideas 
that they were actually really convinced were going to be big ideas and had built out product and had customers and traction. And then they came to the conclusion, this this just doesn't have anything that is real staying power. So we're going to hold ourselves to a higher standard than just going after it because we've started it. And we're going to spend some time figuring out a big idea. And to me, that's a win. Of course, it's so hard to find a big idea. It's so hard sometimes to find white space. And then, of course, once somebody does, you're like, oh, of course, that should have existed before. But in terms of finding these student teams, what sort of message did you put out in the world in order to get these teams to come to you in the first place? How did that process work? So we actually ran a pretty tight process last time because, to be honest, I'm working with my colleague, Tyler Whittle, who was originally my TA within Stanford. He's run StartX as a COO before. He's worked around startups for a long time. And so I hired him in to actually start helping us run these programs. When I said to him, hey, I think we should run this, it was a reaction also to a builder's community that we had run the prior year. And we were seeing all of these students who are undergrads who are coming back and saying, hey, we're actually going to try building a startup. We said, okay, we're going to just put you into this additional program. And the messaging we went out to, we said, we didn't just want the students that came into this original program, which we call outliers, where we were teaching through these concepts of entrepreneurship. We didn't want it to just be those kids. We wanted to open it up to basically all these future founders from a variety of universities. So we went to the builders and so the engineering school, the CS departments at a number of universities and said, hey, if you're interested in being a future founder and you're a great builder, then we are interested in talking to you. And the main message there was, we don't need you to actually have an idea that you're working on. We just want you to be an amazing builder with an incredible amount of curiosity. And partially the reason there is, we need you to be able to build fast and actually throw away product unemotionally because you're going to have to do that. But you also have to be curious about the history of the industry that you're working in and the so-called idea maze that a lot of people talk about. We call that internally super thinkers. And so when we looked at the application, that was a lens that we were looking at. There are so many smart college students in the world and so many people who are trying to create relationships with them. And it's so smart because I guess worst case scenario, you now have a pool of young people. Also, if their ideas don't work out, maybe you introduce them to a company where they can add a lot of value. Well, when you talk about big ideas, what is the definition of a big idea and how do you know when you see it? I think this is so interesting because this is the question that I struggled to answer when I was teaching all these entrepreneurship classes at Stanford, you would have all these business plan classes or business model classes. And then there would be the one lecture where you'd say, and you have to build something venture scale. And we kind of wave our hands and say, it's like billions of dollars. Right. And as a seed stage investor, I've come to realize that there are two types of businesses that can actually become really big. One is you have an idea Most people actually already understand what this idea is, but you're just operationally better. And so you out-execute everyone else. What I realized is as a seed investor, we don't really have an advantage investing into those companies because we don't see enough of the operations to know who is best at operating that kind of startup. And so when founders hear, oh, we need a little bit more traction before we make a decision, It's because most likely 
you are running a business that is more operationally focused versus the second type, which I believe is insights focused. And an insights-led business is really identifying what we call an inflection point. And usually an inflection point has a few components to it. The first is that there is some sort of change event that has happened. An example could be the technical change event, CRISPR got invented, or it's a regulatory change event. So COVID happens. And so as a result, telemedicine across state lines is allowed, or it is a sea tide change in the way the society thinks. The most common one now that people point to is work from home. And so you have those change events that happen from either a societal, regulatory, technical piece that then impacts how a product is built, a new feature is possible. Maybe it's cheaper to be built that way. It's better or faster. You could also have a completely different business model. You can license it out versus having to pay for it on a monthly basis or vice versa. The margin structure could be totally different or the business ecosystem fundamentally changes. And when that happens, if you can tie it to this is therefore going to create a fundamental pull in adoption of my product in the next two to three years, now you have something. That is an insight that a seed investor should be investing into. And the more secrets you have, the more durable you are in terms of being a seed stage protectable business. But sometimes they're flimsy, right? And it's fine because you just work fast. But I think that that's the type of thing that we're really looking for our students to really figure out, but also even our more experienced founders, people who have lots of work experience. These are the things we're focusing on now. So I just want to ask a couple more questions about this particular program. Was there any money involved? Yes. We are writing $50,000 checks into all of the companies. And then a bunch of them will just say at the end, oh, we're not going to do this anymore. So in that case, they close up shop. And then we had two companies that are going on with investment from us. And then one that might actually take on additional investment and one that actually took outside investment. So we have four companies that are continuing to operate out of 10. That's great. So uh, for the $50,000, the ones who close up shop, obviously that money is just gone. For the other ones, does that buy you a stake in the company that you can disclose to me? We're actually still revising that for the mm. next year. So I don't want to put a pin in what we're going to do for the next year. So let me hold off on that. But it is a safe note. And then for the follow-on financing, it actually ranges in terms of what the person needs and also when we invest into that company. So it's ranged actually in valuation as well. So four out of 10 is a pretty good hit rate. What about mentorship? You're working with them. Who else is working with these companies? We had some incredible mentors who came in from industry. We had Ronaldo Ama from Looker, Ryan Kalbeck from Circle. We had Aaron Kalb. So we had all of these people who were actually fairly technical who came in from industry to serve as mentors. And so it's definitely goes outside of the floodgate ecosystem to find some of the people who are willing to work with and provide very honest feedback that goes outside the bounds of what floodgate's teaching. That's great. And just because, again, so many people are approaching students who could become founders and they might be deciding, say next summer, who should I work with? What kind of a time commitment does this involve? And is it virtual? Do they have to spend time here? 
Yeah. So this is an in-person experience. Mm -hmm. They were able to come into our office actually Tuesday through Friday. They were required to be here Tuesdays and Thursdays, but actually most of the students probably came in four days a week. It's really what created the community within our office. Most of them also lived together. So there are basically two fairly large houses where they decided to live with one another so that they can continue through the conversation beyond the actual meetings they were having internally. From our perspective, Tyler was actually meeting with them probably multiple times a week. Each set of founders I met with at least once a week for 30 minutes. And so there was just a lot of time commitment, not only for me, but actually a bunch of our other partners here put time into making sure that we saw the success of the students. I think that's the major difference for us is it's not just sort of a program that someone else is running. It's mm-hmm. integrated into the very fabric of our office and our partners. But most importantly, the difference is really in the fact that the relationships with these founders is not meant to be just for this summer, whether or not an investment goes through. Were these primarily then students from Stanford? No, I think that was what was really wonderful about it is that we did have Stanford students, but we had students from University of Texas with multiple students from Yale. We had multiple students from Penn. And so it actually spanned multiple different universities. And in fact, this year, we'd love to see even more universities represented. In another program that we ran mostly in crypto for college students, we actually had great students from UIUC, Georgia Tech, Princeton. And so we're really excited to try to expand to as many universities as possible to get coverage. One interesting piece, though, that we learned is, and it's not surprising, the Stanford students are just very well educated when it comes to startups. And so the beauty of actually having Stanford students within this network was that our Stanford students pulled the other students into their network. Being part of the Floodgate Reactor or Outliers program they get the access to not only the knowledge base, but the networks that these Stanford students are so fortunate to have. That's really interesting. I remember talking to a a 19-year-old, this is probably maybe 10 years ago now, a Stanford student, and he was saying he felt so pressured. He felt like he had to become a founder. (laughs) Do you think that that's a pervasive feeling? And I guess, is there any concern about that? Because obviously starting something as you know, and I know too, with the Strictly VC is great and rewarding, but also a pain in the ass and (laughs) exhausting. Yeah. I think that's why even for this program, I really mindfully designed it. So you have a way out, right? And I think it's so important to recognize number one, not everyone is supposed to be a founder. In fact, in the relationships that I have with my students, I will tell certain students that I know really well, you have these incredible skill sets that are so unique and not found in many people that you should go to a large company. You will have so much impact there. And so I will actually directly counsel students not to become founders. I think it's such a specific desire or a specific skill set in a specific moment that from my own personal perspective, It shouldn't be for everyone. And I agree with you. I think there is, to some extent, a major push for people who are technical, for people who Mm -hmm. have good ideas to head in that direction. But my hope is that really by giving them this kind of exposure, they could figure out if there is a founder within. 
I'm glad to hear that you're helping them figure out their path no matter what. And if you don't mind, I'd love to just like zoom out a little bit before I let you go. I'm always trying to understand what's happening in the seed stage of the startup industry where Floodgate has an outsized reputation, I think, especially because you don't actually invest super actively. I know you have a very concentrated approach. I'm just wondering, since you have a fairly small staff there, do you use scouts? What do you think of using scouts? It's so funny. We actually do not have a scout program. I guess our network of friends and family and founders is technically our scouts, but we don't have a financial program the way many people do. I have this network of what I like to call unpartners that I meet up with on a regular basis. And these are angel investors, investors at small funds, And what we do is we will literally share three or four interesting companies that we've looked at in the last two weeks. And then we're sharing with one another how we would diligence it. And if the other people are interested in looking at the company, we invite them in. So that's probably the closest thing that I have to Mm -hmm. scout program, but it's really follows on this educational piece where I'm learning from them about how they think about businesses and I'm sharing with them how I would do diligence. Right. And that's so that might be more personal thing. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to expand what you're seeing and how you're thinking about things. Also, this is maybe a little bit of field again, considering your size, but because things have gotten so competitive, I would talk to people who were going earlier and earlier and earlier to almost a comical degree, but also incubating things because it was true that if you didn't get in at the ground level, by the time you tried to write a post-seed check, for example, you're writing a really big check into a company that had a crazy valuation. Is that anything that you've ever done since you are in the mix with a lot of students? Do you ever help them actually develop their ideas? Does Floodgate consider itself a co-founder in any cases? We are not actively working as co-founders of these companies. We are providing the founders with that position as founders and they own it. I would say we are in pretty early. So sometimes the ideas completely shift to something totally different. That's the way I think about it. I really do believe that there needs to be founder and insight fit It's almost as important as that founder market fit. And so we do a little bit of sharing of here are areas that we think are really interesting, but we never go as far as an alley court to put a founder together with an idea and have them go build. Okay. Interesting that you mentioned that because I have interviewed Kevin for this podcast and we talked a lot about that. I think it's a fascinating model. It really is. I think so too. I also just wondered because it just wrapped up YC was so big. I can't remember how many companies it had in the winter batch, maybe 400 plus. And now I think it had 250. I'm always kind of curious if they've overdone it, if people are less interested. I can sometimes see from our own coverage that there's seemingly a little less appetite for it. So I just wondered what you think about it, if it's ever been something that you follow closely. So I think they provide a tremendous service to founders. And I think people who want to get exposure, get exposure exactly the way they need to. So I have a lot of respect for the product that they offer, the community that they offer, and actually the the way in which fundraising is enabled as a result of that. I think for me, it's just a harder platform to engage with. If I'm only making two to five investments a year, being asked to put in the check 
with a rolling safe note that if I sign tonight, is that one valuation? And if I sign tomorrow, is that another? And like, they don't even really know me, but they're willing to sign on with me. None of that feels quite right. Mm -hmm. And so the ones that I've been engaging with are actually founders that I knew even before they got into YC, but I do see uh, why founders love it. I think that there's tremendous work that they put into the product. And so I would not count out YC. I know every year there's people who say class is too big, Mm -hmm. everything is too diluted and everything's too expensive. But you know that in every group, there's going to be one or two runaway hits. Tying it back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier, with these four teams that are gaining traction, would you encourage them to go to YC, knowing what you do about the network effects, but also YC takes a sizable stake in a company? Yeah, I think for certain companies, it would actually still be valuable, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the students who still feel like they're a little bit outside of the core network, it might be valuable to them. But for most of them, I would say they're probably just going to go straight to a seed round. And so I would say probably not. They actually know which direction they're running in and they're gaining customers and gaining traction. And so that's sort of where they're headed. If they were still much earlier and they just pivoted as the summer ended, that's probably a company that you might want to have enter into YC that could actually be valuable for them too. I do hear stories about founders who go in with some idea and they leave with a much better idea, a very different idea and are are thankful to the partners for that. Okay. A couple of last questions. God, the market today, as we're talking, was just hammered. (laughs) It's a little bit scary. And of course, there's usually a knock-on effect eventually in the startup world. Do you think valuations have fallen to where they should be? Do you expect that there's going to be more pressure on valuations? You think things are shifting the opposite direction? I am still kind of shocked by how many companies are still getting funded every day, funds announcing massive amounts of capital that they've just secured somehow from their LPs. Very confusing. I think that there's so much capital in the system that it's hard to say like the valuations will completely normalize. When we first started, it was very normal to invest at a two to $5 million valuation range. Mm -hmm. You you hardly see that anymore. Certainly not at the seed stage that we're talking about. And I don't expect it to really return to that. And so the real question is, what is really a seed round? Is it a one to $2 million round at a five to 10 post, or is it 10 to 15 post, or is it 15 to 20 or even more? More recently, we're seeing five or $6 million raised was now a seed round. And I was laughing with my partner because when we first started, people were selling 50% of their company for $5 million. And now you see some seed rounds where people are getting five or $6 million for 20% of the company, maybe even less. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to see that math and how that works at the end of the day. Is it that we have more returns? Some VCs would argue that. Are the returns actually much bigger over time? Some VCs would argue that. But we are always tracking that initial valuation that we're coming in What is the check size that we're writing into? What kind of ownership do you get? Do you believe that you can return the fund with this exit? And so if I own 10% of a company, if I have a $150 million fund, 
then I need to maintain that 10% ownership and that company needs to be worth $1.5 billion. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that starts to give you a sense of that's the size exit that I need to see. So that's my aspiration. Right Right now, the exits market is pretty closed up. But Mm -hmm. to be honest, when you're investing at the seed stage, whether or not the exit market today is closed doesn't really have anything to do with investments that we're making today. I have to balance out valuation but really it's around optionality for our founders. We need them to to raise at a low enough valuation that the next round is not an uphill battle to do. And so we're just trying to keep that part of realism real within our founders. That seems to be the major battle more than anything else. And you also don't want them selling too much of their company upfront when you have these serial seed rounds, because then it becomes either less interesting to follow on investors or gets harder for earlier investors to maintain their pro rata. I thought that trend in recent years was so alarming in a way, because also oftentimes the founding teams ended up with a smaller and smaller percentage pretty quickly. I thought the, the part that was hardest coming into some of those rounds was that they would have layered multiple safe notes, one on top of another, with no understanding of how much dilution they'd taken on. And because they hadn't actually laid on the table, what is this cap table? If we convert all of these safe notes, inevitably you have this surprise of, oh, wow, we sold way more of the company than we intended. And so I think that's where people have to be careful of doing the easy thing versus cleaning up your cap table sooner so that you know exactly where you stand. Super interesting. I didn't realize that was happening. Okay. Last question. You and Mike started this firm a long time ago when it was still very unusual to start. I don't even remember the, what it was called, yeah. micro VC fund. So you've built under maybe, I don't know if adverse conditions is appropriate, but there are a lot of emerging managers who have started down this path and then everything changed. Maybe they didn't close the fund before the market turned and they might be finding it nearly impossible right now. Just wondering for people listening and reading, if you have any advice for them. Yeah. So first of all, I've seen a real downturn. I was working in venture capital in 2001 when my second day of work was 9-11. So with that perspective, we are not facing a real downturn. (laughs) I saw in those days people laying off 90% of their workforce. When I was at CRV, they reduced their fund size from 1.2 billion to 450 million. I forgot that they did that too. I always think about Excel giving back money, but I forgot that CRV did the same thing. Yeah, and it was my first project, analyze the market and figure out what needed to be done. It was just interesting to provide the data to the partnership to help them make that decision. But I remember back in those days what it was like to see a down market This is not that, right? We are not seeing that level of impact where Mm -hmm. literally there were no exits. No one was buying a company. No one was IPOing. It really came to a screeching halt. So at the very least, that's the good news. I've always been this contrarian in some sense. When I started Floodgate, people used to ask if I was starting Floodgate because I couldn't get a job anywhere else. And that's how weird it was to start a venture capital firm at that point, right? No one had really thought that that was possible. It sounded like a bizarre idea. It was during an economic downturn of 2008, but I loved it because it was different. And so for emerging managers who are starting out now, I think it's like this wonderful time where things are a little bit slower 
really reflect on what is your different. Because I think over the last few years, people have just been trying to get the money and write out all the checks. And it didn't give you the chance to really think through those things. We were talking internally with our partnership of all of the really interesting inflection points that are happening. And we see so many opportunities for entrepreneurs to build huge businesses today. And so it is actually the right time to lean into the market, but to be very discerning about where you look. It is the worst time to invest in something that is hot. You want to look at something that is underappreciated. There's a great article by Howard Marks called I Beg to Differ. And part of his point is you can't make money investing unless you are investing in a way that everyone else thinks is a little bit crazy. Right. And so that's the thing I would say is most important is figure out how you're crazy. <laughs> that's great advice. I know how I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and really nice to catch up with you. Thank you so much for everything. I hope it's not too long before I see you in person. Yeah, me too. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. And special thanks to Morgan Stanley at Work for sponsoring this episode. Have a great weekend. And we will see you here next week.